Dr. Geneva Speaks. Thank you for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks, where you'll hear amazing leaders from across the nation and around the world. Your host, Dr. Geneva Williams, a cutting-edge, transformational leadership coach, hopes and believes this show will enlighten, entertain, and inspire you to make a difference in the world. So listen up as Dr. Geneva Speaks. everyone. This is Geneva, and welcome to another fabulous show as we take a look into the heads and hearts of leaders and the greater purpose they inspire in others. I'm just so delighted uh, with uh, our show today. Our guest is Dr. Phyllis Meadows, public health leader, community leader, uh, just an all-around fabulous individual. She serves as Associate Dean for Practice at the University of Michigan School for Public Health and has focused her efforts in more than 25 years of experience on uh, designing community-based health approaches, outreach, health education, program design, and evaluation. She, uh, at the university, um, she focuses her efforts on developing uh, comprehensive strategies for the School of Public Health to improve public health. And she also is a faculty member of the Department of Health Management and Policy at U of M, where she develops and teaches courses in uh, public health administration and leadership and public health policy. She's been the director of the Department of Health for the City of Detroit. She's been a program officer with the Kellogg Foundation. She's also senior fellow with the Kresge Foundation, where she advises and develops and guides the programming efforts for the health team. And she's also actively involved in the implementation and evaluation of several national public health initiatives that build local leadership and community partners to primarily uh, impact and address the health inequities experienced by many vulnerable populations across the country. So today as we look at leading community change in urban America, I could have, uh, I just couldn't have a better guest for the show. So welcome, Phyllis. Okay. How are you? I'm I'm well, thank you. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And, you know, I've given our listening audience uh, a little taste of your background. Uh, But tell us about Phyllis Meadows. Um, Where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your childhood. And was there anything in your growing up experiences that perhaps led you to the wonderful work that you do in public health today. Oh boy, so oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, well, a little bit about me. I'm a native Detroiter. I was born in Detroit, and for those who who herald from the east side of Detroit, I'm an, I'm originally an east sider, though I've lived in different parts of Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up. Um, attended the Detroit Public Schools. I'm a graduate of Martin Luther King High School and um, just have continued to keep my roots in Michigan and keep my connections in Detroit. 
uh, throughout my throughout my life. I still have family in Detroit, so I consider Detroit my home and a central part of who I am and and what I do. I think all of that comes from from the work and relationships and experiences and connections in Detroit. Um, uh-huh. My parents are were working class folks. Um, uh, my dad was a uh, a minister, a, a pastor of a church uh, in Detroit. Um, uh, he's since passed on, and my mother worked in uh, the Detroit public schools. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, we we are pretty humble kind of family. I have five brothers. I'm the only girl of five brothers. And oh, I think, okay. Yeah. I think if mm-hmm. I had the thing that sort of pushed me to leadership was probably those five brothers just trying to <laughs> hang with them. I was sort of born in the middle of that group. But I'll honestly mm-hmm. say, you know, a lot of my uh, leadership work or even just exposure to leadership opportunities came from my father, who in many ways was a traditional man from the South where women really sort of were typically more low-key at home. Um, but he always put things in front of me that sort of encouraged me to to step forward, either in church or in the community. And he was a very strong community advocate and very strong servant of the community. Um, a lot of what and who I am is in my love for community and and my you know my love for service comes from my dad. And then my mother was just one of these, and still is, one of these, um, if you believe it, you can do it, people, and uh, fearless, just a fearless woman. Um, And so I think those are the kinds of things that position you and give you some of the characteristics for leadership, to to want to serve first, uh, to want to make a difference, to be willing to step out in front, and, and to be fearless, so... That that's who I am. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I've talked to uh, leaders on the show, and, and just in, in general, um, I hear so much about uh, parents and families and things that happen growing up. And like you're saying, you you know, your mom and dad uh, put things in front of you, encouraged you. Your, your development, your taking on those leadership challenges. Is there a particular event or thing that happened that perhaps uh, stands out in your mind today that, uh, as you were younger, mm-hmm. that kind of put you on a leadership path? Oh, wow. Um I'm sort of drawing a blank, and then I'm sort of uh, having flight of ideas here with, uh, I don't know. I I would always kind of go back to my experiences in the Detroit public schools. Um, Okay. And where I had, I actually was, and and still sort of have that tendency to want to step behind things and push from behind uh, versus being up front. But I had teachers uh, several teachers who really pushed me to to step up front. Um, I can remember at one point in our school we were sort of having a protest about, you know, what we were allowed to do on the campus of the school and what we weren't allowed mm-hmm. to do. 
and it just seemed like a worthy cause to to give us room to you know to expand ourselves to try to address the relationship with the students and the and the teachers so that they trusted us more to not just contain us within the walls of the schools but to give us sort of the latitude to to move about the grounds of the school but to also come back mm-hmm. and so I sort of kind of gotten with a band of people and before I knew it I was sort of leading the charge and writing the letters and and mm-hmm. sort of moving the discussions around, you know, um school policy and I would say it's probably my first sort of policy endeavor. Um mm-hmm. where the school decided to really create a space for us so that we it wasn't just classroom and hallways, but also a place for students to kind of gather and relax and have their own uh, space. And so I would say, you know, that's the one that comes to mind, I'm sure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. others, but I've always I would say that there were, were teachers who said, you know, if there was a speech to give, you give it. If there was uh, an opportunity to represent the school, I was asked to do it. And so, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have volunteered if I hadn't been asked. But I, I think I, thank God, I had the wisdom to, to say yes because I think all of those opportunities helped me along the way. Mhm, mhm. So you were able to practice leadership at a fairly young age. Very much so. Yeah. Do you do you remember any, or just thinking back, reflecting back on those? earlier years, what were the lessons you learned about leadership as you were working with your fellow students or a teacher pushed you to make a speech? What were some of the things you learned about leadership back then? Um, I, I would say that it, it, that it mattered. I think that um, that it was not something you just did because it gave you visibility or popularity, Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm grateful that I never thought about it that way, even as a youngster, and I still don't today, but that if you are going to stand on something, stand on something that mattered um, and that it should have meaning if you're going to exert yourself and extend yourself on behalf of others, it should have meaning, not just for you, as a matter of fact, not particularly for you at all, but for the cause or for the purpose. And, and that, that's always been a driver. And I, I, I think about my younger years, I, I never really wanted any visibility. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I okay. <laughs> really gravitated towards sort of the beacon, what was the cause, what were we really working on mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. 70s racism mm-hmm. or um, you know, sort of uh, some of the pushbacks of the establishment, uh, when police in Detroit were maybe not being as fair. It was those issues that were the driver, and I think that's where you get your fuel is through, you know, real work and the issues. And I I also think, you know, there's there's a um, there's a loneliness component of leadership, I think, that I felt you felt sort of on the fringes of things, but in the middle of things, and that mm-hmm. um, I I learned really early that building relationships and and having 
having a core, you didn't have to have a thousand, but just having a core group of people who you could um, rely on that leadership is not just singular, that it is it's other people working together, supporting, connecting, using their combined energy to get to things. And I learned that early that those relationships are just key to any leadership story. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's lonely at the top often, and what you're suggesting is that um, leaders need to develop a, a, a core of people around them. It doesn't have to be a big group, but at least one or two or three people that they can relate to or they have relationships with. Absolutely. Um, and to kind of take away some of that lonely feeling. Yeah. It's like my okay. one growing up parents always said, you should be friendly to a lot of people. But you only really need a couple of really good friends and a good mm-hmm. good people around you. You don't have to be at the center with a hundred surrounding you. You could be sitting anywhere with one or two people and that's as strong as being surrounded by hundreds of people. Mhm. Mhm. Good advice, good advice. So Phyllis, uh, take us forward. So okay. you had a, a, t- a terrific, uh, um, some terrific experiences in uh, K through 12 uh, education at Detroit Public Schools. Uh, so what were your next steps uh, after you graduated? What happened? Well, um, I had um, some really interesting choices to go to to college. I I wanted early on to. To, to be a nurse only because I, I had a beautiful, gorgeous cousin who was a nurse, and she was just perfect. She looked perfect. She she did everything perfectly in my okay. And I wanted to be like her. And so nursing, in a way, service was a calling. I knew I was going to do something in service, but I I really aspired to be like her. And so mm-hmm. that's why I chose nursing. And, and you know, as I think about my family, I was a first-generation. No, my my oldest brother went to college, but we were all first-generation college-goers. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the choices back then, especially when I entered college, which was in the, you know, late 70s, you pretty much, you know, you did education, you did nursing. Um, I think I was smart enough to do Medicine. I was a 4.0 student in high school, okay. but I just uh-huh. didn't, I didn't see that vision for me in medicine, mm-hmm. um, and it just felt more comfortable where I started off in nursing. So I went to Oakland University. Um, mm-hmm. I had a chance to go to a number of schools, uh, U of M, uh, Michigan State, Eastern. I applied to a number of schools mm-hmm. within the state and outside the state. And I chose to stay in state because, um, one, I had full scholarships in all of those schools, but because I had other brothers who were, we were very close in age, and literally there were three or four of us in college at the same time. So I knew my parents didn't have a lot of money, so I Mm sort of said, well, here's an opportunity for me to go to a college. And the reason why I picked Oakland was because it wasn't far away. The campus was not big. They paid for everything, including my books, 
transportation to and from campus. They paid for tuition. I got a full ride. Um, and I didn't have to worry my parents about money. And that was what I was concerned about because I had a younger brother coming right behind on my footsteps within a year, and he was going to be in college. And then within the next year, my my younger brother, my oldest brother, had just, you know, completed what he was going to do. So we just had just too much going on financially. Uh Uh I just Uh didn't want to put that bearing on them. But then I I also was a little bit – I was a little bit shyer. I was kind of on the shy side, and the thought of just going away, being in another state, I had an opportunity to go to Howard. Uh, and, I, you know, a number of black colleges and some of my counselors kind of encouraged me to go there. But I decided to stay in Michigan. I thought Michigan State was too big. I thought U of M was too big. And, you were, and Oakland was away, but it wasn't too far away. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. So you went to Oakland where you got a nursing degree. I got a bachelor's degree in nursing, and then okay. uh, later got a master's degree in nursing from Wayne State. Mm-hmm. And then did a, year, a few years later did a Ph.D. in applied sociology at Wayne State as well. Okay. So with your nursing degrees, did mm-hmm. you ever practice? Did you ever practice? Did you ever know? Oh yeah, oh yes. I okay. I say I. Right. Yeah, I say I still do practice. I I use my nursing skills every day, <laughs> quite honestly. Okay. But right. uh, yeah, I started off at um, at uh, Hutzel Hospital. I worked there, mm-hmm. and then I went. I I worked at. The, I've had pretty eclectic nursing, uh, hands-on experience. Probably the first. 10 years of my professional life. So I worked at Hutzel, and I worked for the Visiting Nurses Association. I worked for the Michigan Cancer Foundation, which was really a home care agency. So I did mm-hmm. home for about eight years. I did clinical in-hospital work for about two, and then um, then went into public health um, right after that. So I've I've done nursing practice, worked with Infants and babies, hands-on and surgical patients, elderly. It's probably covered the whole scope other than psychiatric nursing. I've done mm-hmm. nursing, mm-hmm. step-down. I've had a whole wonderful range of hands-on so nursing experiences. Yeah, so you've had that direct, hands-on, oh, yeah. as you say, up-close-and-personal nursing up experience. Up-close-and-personal. Now, much from what I, I know, much of your career has been involved on the public health, public policy side. Mm-hmm. So, tell us about, you know, tell us about that from the practice to the public policy side. Um, what made you go into the public policy side after so much direct contact nursing experience? Yeah, well, you know, they're very closely aligned, you know, health and health policy. The you, At certain points, uh, you just can't separate the two. They're very, very okay. interwoven, whether you think of big policy at the national or state level or whether you're thinking about organizational policy, which is where a lot of policy work really happens is on the ground in organizations. Um but I would say that my, my entree into the sort of policy arena 
uh, came, I was a, a very young director of nursing for a home care agency called the medical team. And mm-hmm. in that role, while I did supervise a group of nurses and did a lot of administrative work, we had a huge responsibility at that time because the home health care aid uh, movement was really shifting. A lot of dynamics were going on with with uh, Medicare policy and Medicaid policy. And so in that director role, I was sort of thrust into the conversations about the, the health care policies and the the actual practices that nurses would and would not be able to do, what would be paid for, what wouldn't be paid for. So I sort of kind of got naturally thrust by that role into the policy discussions. And then, as you know, Dr. Williams, um, public health is is sort of half and half policy, half interventions. The governmental public health is probably more policy work than it is actual intervention because you're you're enforcing laws, you're you're regulating laws, you're informing policies and then you're developing ideas about and recommendations about policies that will help keep people healthy. So mm-hmm. I think moving into work where I started really working on issues around um, mothers and children's health was also a big push. It was just in order to achieve some of the things we thought were important for moms and babies in Detroit and the southeastern Michigan region, we had to step into the policy discussions and look at what were some of the barriers to women getting the care that they need in a way that they needed to get it and and um, the resources that they needed in order to be healthy. So that's how mm-hmm. I ended up in mm-hmm. that policy space and, Mm-hmm. As you know, um, health department work is is policy work, and so you know that's what I was involved in. Mm-hmm. So, so you've done an incredible amount of work as as you shared with us. But as I also know, um, with uh, the health of moms and babies, yes, yeah. what's the, what's the biggest health issue facing moms and babies today? Oh, boy. Well, um, that's that's a tough one because there there are so many issues and and they vary from location to location. But like if you take an area like um, southeastern Michigan, Detroit, and specifically, there's still a challenge with um, with infant mortality. We still have probably too many preventable deaths of, of infants. Um, and so that still remains uh, a challenge for for the city and many urban cities across the country uh, is how do we make sure that the women who need the services the most get get the services because there there are wonderful services out there for moms and babies. We need to make sure that they get the services that they get them uh, in a timely way, which is always a big issue and that there are not any policies out there that are prohibiting them from engaging those services, moving through those systems in a fluid way. And that's, mm-hmm. always, that's always been a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, really for children under the age of five, we still have problems. The leading cause of death for children under the age of five is still accidental uh, injuries. 
So from poisoning and drownings and um, falls and abuse, uh, and we sometimes don't talk about child abuse, but there, there clearly um, there's a there are huge concerns around how well ch- children are treated still that sometimes uh, we don't talk about, but are is really a factor contributing to some of those injuries that we see. So to me, those are some, you know, obviously with what's happened in Flint, lead exposure, that's been an issue for, for children in America and many, many of these urban core cities for, for decades. Um, and so it's not that we, we can't address it, we just get distracted for, with other priorities, uh, which, you know, we decide that the roads may be more important than ensuring the children get food. Uh, we still have something like one in four children um, in America who are, you know, who are hungry and who who don't get three meals a day and maybe only get one meal a day. And if they're in school, that's the one solid meal they may get. So there's just a, just a range of issues, and it, it sometimes gets difficult to know where to land um, mm-hmm. But it really all centers around we have to decide that our children and uh, and the women who bear these children and, and bring these children into this world are a central part of our existence. And so creating an environment so that they can be healthy should be our priority, and it is not. You know, we, we just got too many too many factors from terrorism to, you know, we're, we're arguing about Planned Parenthood, and you know we we haven't really taken care of the children who are here. So I think we just our value system is only partially solid. We 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 haven't made a full and solid commitment to ensuring that all children are healthy, and that all women who care for them and who bring them into the world are healthy and have the resources they need to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest. Is you know, is what you really believe and what you hold dear. Mm-hmm. So creating an an uh, an agenda that values that places priorities on 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 healthy children and and moms. You know, you mentioned Flint, so I want to definitely jump into that. Though I do want to revisit this. You know, what can the question of what can leaders do to um, help put more focus on children's health. But but let's let's jump over to Flint because I know you you've been in Flint. Give us what is happening in Flint and what's your perspective on what the long term scenario might be, particularly for children in Flint. Ooh, well, you asked some really tough questions. <laughs> so so um Dr. Williams, Flint is, um, um, you know, a city of uh, probably about 50% African American. It's, you know, it's just predominantly African American, but you know, it has a pretty diverse population of folks from. Uh, they have a huge immigrant population, or I should mm-hmm. say, migrant population, as well as whites. Um, it is not a wealthy city by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, so has had huge economic challenges uh, long term. Um, 
the way I've described Flint in a couple of conversations that I've had and talks that I've done about it is to say that Flint is emblematic of of society's disinvestment in these kind of um, so urban cities with these kinds of demographics, particularly those where there are marginalized populations. And it's just reflecting that even though I know the water situation is a crisis, it's just reflecting it's a symptom of something that's larger that's happening around this country where you see many cities with populations that mirror what's happening in Flint, and it's just not economically advantageous to to reinvest in building those cities. So you constantly see over time a leaching of the resources, the opportunities for work, um, the opportunities for good health. All of those things are just kind of being sucked away to for some other economic gain. Yeah. I, I the Flint, the folks in Flint and the people that I've engaged with over the last few years, and we've been sort of um, con- trying to stay connected with Flint through my role at the university for the last six years. And when I talk to the people there and the, the organizations that are on the ground, what they say it was, you know, the, for them, the only way I could sum it up was it was a failure, a failure to listen because the community, there's some strong advocates in that community who have been talking about the issues, the problem. They've been talking. They were talking about the water before the studies were made public. They were mm-hmm. advocating for something to be done about the condition of the water. But it, when I talk to them, they feel like their concerns were falling on deaf ears. And so I just think as a society, we we may, maybe, I don't know if we listen. I don't think we really listen in the truest sense of really hearing people or we listen for what we want to hear. And in that scenario, they've been talking about the fact that there, there's no major grocery store in Flint. So people, the, the one grocery store they had closed. And so the community has tried to galvanize to to try to bring a grocery store back to their community, but it's mm-hmm. not lucrative to do that for those who would invest, and people don't see the promise of that. And so that community struggles to have access to, um, you know, the major food products without getting in a car and driving a distance to get to a grocery store. So, you know, you talk about food deserts, which is my one of my least favorite words, but they have that challenge. And among many things from, from um, you know, the city went into emergency management and the, and the people in the community see that change in their own leadership and that change and not having a control over what decisions are made in that city as a populace they see that as a factor too. I know I'm, I've got there's so many issues that are mm-hmm. really hard to 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 land because it's you know it's economic, it's social, it's political. Um, the community right now is very distrustful of everyone. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, there's goodwill going on, but so you're so scattered and 
people are not trusting even the even mm-hmm. the best options right now. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying that while well, of course there's a lot of attention, national attention, attention all over the place on this this lead in the water crises. Yeah. That really it's 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 part of a larger uh, context of economic and social disinvestment over the years. Yeah. Um, that that creates a, a real. It, it would seem that that creates a leadership vacuum uh, yeah. in Flint. Have you found that to be the case? And and if so, um, how do you solve that? Well, you know. <laughs> I probably would not use the words leadership vacuum because I do think that there are leaders in that community. I've met them and I've heard them. What I think Mm -hmm. is lacking is the venue for that leadership voice. And what happens often in disenfranchised communities, people are just talking to each other. And so really for those people who really need to listen, are they, are they creating the space so that the concerns and the issues that the community feels are priority, are they making the space to hear those? And hearing does often mean shifting where you may think you need to go. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I there. There probably could, you know, obviously there's a leadership capacity issue because I just think you you do get fatigue if you've been voicing concerns for years after years, talking about the failure for folks to listen. And I do think there's probably more leadership fatigue than there is, you know, the absence of leadership. And mm-hmm. so I, for us... It's a matter of how do we how do we form those relationships that can buttress some of that leadership fatigue and carry our men back to regeneration because these are people who are longtime planners, they care about the community, they've been advocating for the community, they're they're the ones who are known community leaders, they're tired. They're angry and they're tired. And so mm-hmm. I think room for peace and support. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, you raise, an, you raise an interesting, a very interesting observation, this whole notion of leadership fatigue. Uh, folk who've been in position of uh, leadership who get tired, angry, yeah. disappointed, frustrated. How do how do you get out of leadership fatigue? So let's say we're we're you know we're in Flint, we're working, we've been you know leading the the, the battle for many years, and we're tired. Um, yeah. How do you how do you get out of that space, and how do you find a way to encourage new leaders to come into the fold? Well, I think you you partially answered my answer by saying. That, that I believe there are always leaders. Sometimes we don't know them, and sometimes they're not the obvious people. There are sometimes those people who are standing in the background waiting to be asked. And so I do think in Flint there is an opportunity 
to look at building and uh, on on new leadership, and then not and giving those those seasoned tireless workers who are now mm-hmm. now, now really tired uh, an opportunity to advise and really shift their roles from 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 not so much the doers but to the advisors and the guiders and the historians who can keep um can address some of the landmines that they know that exist because in all of that fatigue is probably amazing lessons deep mm-hmm. insight great mm-hmm. experience that you know it's just like as we age we get older and we 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 mm-hmm. still what's in our head we just don't have perhaps the energy or the physical capacity to move like we did when we were 35 and now we're 80 mm-hmm. but we got good information, good stories, um, good um, good advice, good warnings that we can share. And so I think this would be a wonderful time for Flint as it's going to it's going to rebuild itself. The people are resilient; it will rebuild. But I think you could move the trajectory on that build by looking at cultivating new leadership and using to strengthen the wisdom of the, that tired group to, you know, and, of course, they they got some healing to do because they've been bruised mm-hmm. and they've been scorned, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think we do need to attend to that. Uh, but I don't, I can't imagine any good leader who will want the legacy of their hard work to fall on the wayside. And so knowing that there may be an opportunity to cultivate and grow new leaders who can take on the charge and take on with their wisdom might be a strategy. And, you know, and I'm I'm shooting mm-hmm. in the dark because I know life is far more complex than that, but that's where I see the leadership opportunity is. Mm-hmm. Help, helping to build that uh, capacity. So, so if 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 there's a, so in in talking about building that that new leadership, uh, developing uh, greater capacity, uh, what do you think um, folks should look look for? I mean, what do you think is is the, the one or two key characteristics that you believe every leader should possess? Oh. <laughs> Um, oh, one or two things every leader should possess. I again, I I think there there has to be at the forefront of really good leadership a selflessness. Because if it's about you, that to me is stardom. You know that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so you really I think. It, Leaders are sort of, you know, I, I always think of the movie Rebel Without a Cause. I yes. think you need a ah. cause. You need to be a mm-hmm. rebel with a cause. and mm-hmm. Or causes. You have to land on something that you're, that you continuously try to move, whether it's, whether it's a philosophy, um, whether it's uh, an intent, whether it's an outcome. I just think you need that cause. You've, you've got to have purpose. So um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a characteristic, but I definitely think it's uh, it's essential that selflessness mm-hmm. 
number one. Mm-hmm. And then number two, I, you know, and the folks who I have admired and have been my mentors through through my correct professional career, and, and I will say mentorship is essential, <laughs> is essential okay. to have, um, have always told me, and I know you and I share mutual love and admiration for Dr. Gerald Smith, who who's mm-hmm. now with, but, you know, one of the most memorable things that I think he taught me in, in my leadership growth was the importance of relationships. Okay. And so I think caring enough and caring more about the relationship than the outcome and always keeping that in mind um, will just, I think, is just a central tool. I don't get mm-hmm. I don't know the characteristics. You know, I know people think about being visionary and, you know, being charismatic. I, I, I don't, I don't know about all those. They're nice, but I just there's some substantive, um, sort of sort of uh, values that um, are just key to where I would the leaders that I've admired the most and the ones that I've seen do the most are those that, you know, they never forget the relationship and they never forget why they're, why they're leading. Mm-hmm. And never just, forget why you're leading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you've, uh, you know you're, you're in, into a lot of things uh, yeah. in terms of your community work and your, your teaching, your leading at the university in terms of public health, your working with, uh, you've worked with various foundations, you're working now for a major international foundation advising, consulting, developing public health uh, policies and practices, you've led uh, city departments. How do you balance all of that? How do you balance your personal life and your leadership efforts in the community? How do you do that? Hmm. Well, I think for me, and I, I can't speak for anyone else, I, I, I think that the notion of balance is not real. Okay. And I think, you know, it, even if you look at your human body, it's adaptive and it, it adjusts to what's going on and what's needed. That's that's a functioning body. That's a functioning human body is that um, – when it's hot, it's adapting to manage it to cool you by sweating. You know, when it's cold, it's it's making changes to to keep you from freezing. Um, you know, when you're under stress, it's it's taking on things and changing your chemical structure to try to help you manage that stress. If you're afraid, it's it, you know the chemicals are changing. So, I, I pretty much see life like that. That it, okay. you know, I know it would be nice if I could say, well, 25% of my life is this and 25% is that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it wavers. I, if, you know, my work is, is valuable to me. It's something that I enjoy doing most of the time. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. it's time when it calls on my energy in unsurmountable ways. 
And then there are times when my family or my friends or, you know, my spouse, whomever, my church needs me, then I'm going to have to make that adjustment. So while I may be able to give 110% to some task at work, I can still give 90 and it will be an A, and I can up mm-hmm. the ante on what I give to balance out the things that are happening. I think you, you naturally balance according to what happens to you in the world. Now, I will say I've gotten older because I like being busy. Uh-huh. That, that if anything, for to, to try to keep somewhat of a normal balance or at least some degree of balance um, is to be able to say no. And that's hard mm-hmm. for people like me. And I, you know, I work on it all the time and actually now celebrate when I say no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that to me is, um, for me is to suggest my character is building because I don't have to be in everything. I, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I think I have a lot to give and I want to give, but I have to also be realistic that I can't be good. I'd rather be good at a few things than, you know, halfway good at a, a lot of different things. And so that for me is my own maturity and my own growth. So being able to say no is one way to keep balance. And the other is, you got to surround. I've been blessed. I have a wonderful, supportive husband who picks up the slacks in some areas. You know, I've I've got friends. I've got family who sometimes will just check and say, "Well, Phyllis, you know, is that too much, or you need to?" And I like that kind of. Sometimes I need that because I can get so immersed in what I'm doing that I appreciate it when then the when the external view says. That seems like a lot. And that makes me go and reflect. I take advice from certain people very seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and I do look at it and I make adjustments. And so I think there, the balance doesn't really happen. It's adaptation, but there are ways to, 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 to keep your level of adaptation manageable. Mm-hmm. And so having that ability to adapt to circumstances and surrounding yourself, again, with that support system, as well as learning and knowing when to say no, are yes. some of those uh, some of those things that help you keep your balance and you suggest for others. Any other advice that you might give, particularly to a, a new leader or someone going into a leadership position for the first time? Um, yeah, I would always say listen more than talk. Okay. So really listen, observe, and take in. And know that if you're going into leadership for the first time, you are a learner. And even no matter how smart you are, um, especially if you're young, you're smart, you may not be experienced, take the time to listen and learn. I know there's always this challenge and, Attention of if I don't talk, I may not be not seem to be smart. But um, smartness really comes out not necessarily in what you say; it's in what you do. 
And so um, that that would be, I, and that's the advice I give to all young people, who, you know, who are younger than me, who are trying to listen more. And then if you are in leadership role, accept that. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, for young people is they may end up in that role and then they have a lot of doubt, and that doubt shows. And so what I would just say is accept that you've been placed there at a time such as this and that you're there for a reason uh, and that you don't have to know everything. Uh, That's not the goal of a leader. The goal of a leader is to find what's out there and understand the resources that are out there and figure out how to get the all-knowing to the table. Um, that's what I, that's, that's how I think about it. And then the last thing I would advise is to recognize that you must have room, I wish I knew this when I was younger, for reflection and rest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Say a little you know, more about that. Reflection and rest. Yeah, because I the reflection piece of me I think is so important because my reflection and my rest go together, and that's moving away from where you are, and really separating yourself enough to think about, to build that level of self awareness so that you understand what you're thinking, how you're feeling, uh, where you are, taking your own pulse. If you mm-hmm. have encounters, being able to to sort of think about you, not about other people, so not reflecting on other people, reflecting on you, and just really building that sense of self-awareness. Like, who am I and what did I contribute to that? What did I take away from that? What did I cause in that? What did I really do well when I did something that I got rewarded for? And what did I do poorly, and what would I do next time? So really taking taking time out and making it a natural part of your leadership to be reflective. Mm-hmm. And then the rest piece is because, you know, that leadership fatigue can come on to you um, all of a sudden. It's, like it's insidious. It creeps up on you. Mm-hmm. And, have, you, you know, have, you had, have you had a leadership fatigue? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Tell, tell, tell us about I'm sorry? Tell us about one of those. Well, um, and this is, you know, I'm going to be real candid because I think this is an important topic as an African-American woman to talk about, and that is that um, I have frequently been in organizations where um, that as an African-American woman, I've been the minority. Mm-hmm. And um, it, I will say, luckily, in many of those organizations, there was at least some degree of openness to issues around, like, let's say, diversity and inclusion and equity. Um, being one of few African-American people in, in a Brennan setting where folks have not had to engage or understand the culture, understand, you know, the issues broadly for African-American people, I I have just assumed that this was my role of being there and maybe right or wrong and took on the challenge of correcting what I believe were wrongs, 
uh, highlighting where I thought there may be some inequities, um, challenging assumptions that I felt as an African-American woman may not have been appropriate for either me or for populations that we may have been surveying. And that was and when you're in a predominantly non-African-American setting, that's you're you're constantly on. I feel that even mm-hmm. jobs currently, you know, I'm at the university. I'm one of few African Americans, one in leadership, but also even within the school. And I feel mm-hmm. like burden that it's not a burden. That is who I am. It's what I bring to the table. So I can't deny that. And so you do have to find yourself hearing conversations. Um, sometimes very subtle um, isms that people may or may not be aware of and feeling responsible for, I'm here, you said it in my space, so I need to bring forth another dimension of that to help you understand something perhaps you don't understand and to think about this from my lens because you're asking for diversity, so i got to bring my lens to the table on this issue. <laughs> And mm-hmm. that's work. And then mm-hmm. in an organization where you're the minority, it's constant work. Either that you will su- if you don't, you're suffering because you're you know you're hearing and you're getting loaded on with with issues. And in my younger years, I, I kind of heard it and would be mad about it. But as I uh-huh. matured, I said, no, I have a responsibility in this space. Like the people before me, like the Jackie Robinson, we reshape the thinking, reshape the paradigm. I have a role to play here, and so that gets tiring, especially mm-hmm. if you're alone in that you know scenario and you don't have others who are supporting you. And even sometimes when you do, it's mm-hmm. uh, you say you know when when do people really ever get it? And they mm-hmm. sometimes don't. Sometimes you have to repeat it several, ten times, and that's fatiguing. And I have been in a, you know, in one position where I was tired, and I was literally tired of that, and I needed a break from it. And I took a break from it, and I was glad I did. But but during the time that I was there, I gave it the best that I could give it. So that, that's that was, what. That's what that's when you used your that's when you use your relaxation rest technique. Absolutely. Mhm. 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 That reflection that reflection isn't like, you know, you go to the spa for the weekend. Sometimes that reflection mm-hmm. space is, you know, I've been there for ten years, I need to go somewhere else. And, you mm-hmm. know, get mm-hmm. a different perspective. Um and you may learn some new tools because you're interfacing with different people and you may build up a new arsenal of of skills that you can use when you face it again. Yes. <laughs> because yes. you will. And uh, so reflection is, reflective space is not just, you know, sitting down listening to some music and having a glass of wine and thinking about the day. It's also removing yourself from a space. You know, where you work, or maybe in your leadership trajectory, to give yourself a time to re-energize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, as you 
as you're doing that re-energizing, as we're we're winding down, we just have a couple minutes left. But I I, I want to ask you, um, you know, all you've done, all the leadership work you've done, creating community change, particularly in public health, working with moms and children. What do you want your leadership legacy to be? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think the the righteous thing would be to say, you know, I'd love to be able that when people talk about me, they could say what I did for for people. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whether it would be a student who I interfaced with or an organization I worked for or, um, you know, people that I volunteered with, that they they could always see that I had a beacon and it wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. That, it, that it really mattered. That it really mattered, that I did mm-hmm. stuff that I believed, you know, mattered and would help mm-hmm. someone. That would, that would mm-hmm. what I, I would want that to be. Mhm, mhm. And you can, and in the beginning of our conversation, you, you started off with talking about your parents and talking about your experience in in the schools and and how. And I think you referenced a rebel without a cause, and that you always related back to it has to matter, it has to yeah. have meaning. Yeah. And that's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing. You want your legacy to be well. Dr. Phyllis Meadows, it is no doubt in my mind that that, in fact, is what your legacy will be. I thank you so much for joining us uh, today and sharing such great insights about uh, community change and, and leadership and all those kinds of things that matter and make a difference. And you know, you as a, a public health leader, a community leader, valuing, uh, building partnerships, um, working as a nurse up front and personal and in creating change in public health policy, it really makes a difference to uh, leaders and, and you just have a, a a wonderful, wonderful stamp on that leadership value. So I thank you for being my guest, and thank all of you for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Dr. Geneva Speaks. Dr. Geneva Williams, an expert facilitator and leadership coach, lecturer, and keynote speaker. For more information on Dr. Geneva, visit her online at www. DrGenevaSpeaks.com That's DrGenevaSpeaks.com